while in our church we're starting a new series in the book of Acts, which I am super excited to be going into. It is a wonderful book. Um, so look, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the first 11 verses here of Acts chapter 1. The book of Acts is really the first ever written church history book. Uh, it shows us the origin of the church, its identity, and its purpose. As you've maybe heard, if we don't learn from history, we're destined to repeat its mistakes. And that is true. It's also true that if we don't learn from history, we are prone to forget both our identity and our purpose. And so the book of Acts is a, a book that helps uh, ground us as a church. And we see how God takes a few men, um, fishermen, uh, those who, who uh, used to be doctors like Luke himself, to those who were uh, tax, what's the word? Those who would uh, get the taxes from people, um, those guys. I'm thinking of, is it Mark? Anyways, I should have done a little more research on that front. But uh, we see that God takes these no names, and he uses them to turn the whole Roman world upside down. God can do mighty things through his church. And I pray today, too, that we would catch that spirit of what God is doing in his church today, and that we, too, would be excited and thrilled to participate in his glorious work. Let's read the first 11 verses here together. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. What an exciting way to start this book. And... Uh, May the Lord give us the same enthusiasm for his mission. I think all of us want to live a life that is full and brimming with energy and zeal and passion. And um, maybe some of you have had that experience where you don't have that and you feel quite drained in your life. You feel quite tired on your day-to-day -day existence. And uh, that doesn't appeal to us, does it? 
Maybe you've heard the song, forever young, I want to be forever young. Often when you talk about the world, about living forever, they think that seems like a a really miserable existence to go on for all of eternity. And it would be if we were in these bodies that are dying. We are told in 1 Corinthians 15 that what is corruptible will put on that which is incorruptible. That which is weak now is going to be made powerful in heaven. We will be full of life, full of excitement, full of zeal to give praise and glory and honor to our King of Kings. I wish today I could come here today as a doctor and tell you, here's what you got to do to, in this life, have this zeal and excitement from your day-to-day existence so you never feel tired again. But I don't have that magical pill. But I do think as we look at this opening text that we see how we can have a church that is full and brimming with life. Because the truth is that our churches can sometimes seem to be operating at a low battery at a minimum zeal, at a tired pace. We don't seem to be full of life and excitement and zeal for the kingdom of God. And maybe it's good then that we return to the origins of the church, to where the church actually turned over an entire empire to see how God can awaken us again with a zeal and a passion for his mission and for his glory. And we'll see here in our opening text into the book of Acts, that the church of the, uh, the, the first church was a church that was obsessed with the glory of their king. And it was a church that was energized by the Spirit. And that's the two points I want to consider with you as we make our way through our text. That this early church was full of zeal, full of passion, because they were obsessed with their king. And because they were energized by the mighty Spirit at work within them. So let's look at their first place, how they were so passionate about their king. We see Luke starts off by showing us our king is still at work. Look at verse 1 with me. It says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. Maybe you've heard of the work of of someone who was a pioneer and perhaps they started an institution or they started a hospital, they started a charity. Um, When they died and when they passed on or perhaps they retired, perhaps you've heard the phrase where people say, but their work shall continue on long after them. And what they're suggesting to you in that phrase is that though they might not be participating in the institution or the work any longer, what they have started here is going to live on through the lives of others. The work will continue. Is that what Jesus did when he ascended into heaven? Did he just leave a legacy, start up the church, and and now kind of wipe his hands clean and say, my work is done? No, church, we need to recognize that what Luke says is indeed true. When we look at the Gospels, we are only seeing the beginnings of what Jesus began to do and to teach. Jesus did not just pioneer the early church. Jesus is still the one who is building up his church to this very day. For the last 2,000 years, he has been the primary builder. Yes, Jesus' earthly ministry is coming to a close here. And that means that his work here on earth is done. The work of redemption, he said it is finished. That work is closed. He has forgiven all of our sins. He has taken the payment. 
But Jesus also made the promise that I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And Jesus is still fulfilling that promise today. He's not just passing on the baton here. He is going to be living through his church and operating through his church until the very last brick is in place and the church is complete. Jesus is still at work. The king of glory is in the midst of his church and he is building even this very day. And so there are church that is obsessed with the work of their king and what he is doing in their lives. And the early church was founded upon this core foundational linchpin of an idea that we are based upon the resurrection hope of Jesus. And so we see Jesus goes right after his death and his resurrection to go prove that he has indeed conquered the grave. Verse 3, he says, Jesus also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Jesus wanted them to have a boldness and an assurance and a zeal that was based upon the fact that he has started the domino effect of victory. Evidence number one, go to the resurrection. I have defeated death itself. Maybe you've seen uh, how England, I find it quite interesting, how much they love their monarchs, right? How much they, they follow their, their royal leaders, whether they be kings or queens. They seem to be watching the news every day to see what they're doing. What did they eat? What clothes are they wearing? If they have a wedding or a celebration, uh, there's the whole nation that seems to come out to celebrate their monarchs. I was thinking to myself, you know, What's the most that people have done as kings for their nation? There's been some kings that have done some pretty wonderful things that have protected their nation, or perhaps they've conquered lands for their people, or were able to create an environment of peace. You think of King Solomon, how he raised the economic uh, status and prosperity of the nation and brought peace to the, na- the people around them. But what could compare, beloved, to what Jesus has done for us? Ephesians tells us that he has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavens. He's poured it down upon the church. And one of the foundational things, one of the things we need to cleave to the most is the fact that he has even defeated death. What king could do this? What king could knock out a tyrant like that? They can knock out maybe other kings of this world. Jesus took death down for you and for me. And he comes to you and says, I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, you too can know that death will have no hold on you. And so for 40 days he goes and he convinces the early church, you really think that the early church would have taken over Rome if they weren't absolutely confident that their Lord and Savior was victor of the grave. Jesus goes around and he meets the people who are on the road to Emmaus and they said to themselves, we thought this man was our Messiah. We saw him crucified. We saw him suffer. And Jesus had to go and explain to them, yes, he did suffer and he was crucified, but he's risen again. You need to know that I am alive and I am well. And that's when their hearts were strangely warmed. Jesus then goes and he, he sees a huge group, those are 500 people, and he shows himself, I'm, li- I'm living, I am alive, come and see. 
He goes to his own disciples. He goes to a doubting Thomas and he says, put your hand into my hand and your hand into my side and see I'm alive and I am well. Luke describes it as Jesus going around and giving infallible proofs, undeniable proofs, certain confidence. And you'll see as the disciples go out into the world, they hearken back to this truth again and again. Every single speech, they seem to say, do you know that we know someone who's risen again from the dead? And he did it in his own power, in his own strength. He's a victorious Lord, a victorious Savior that we are serving. This is the King we follow. And so after showing the demonstration and the confidence that we have in his victory, Jesus then goes to ascend and take his rightful seat in the throne of glory. We read of that in, in verse 6. It says, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. You know, even from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he would begin talking about the fact that the kingdom of God had entered into our realm. You look at the first book that Luke writes to Theophilus, Many times he comes back to the theme of the kingdom of God and how it is going to grow, how it is going to advance, how it is going to look for God's people. And here we see Jesus returning to this theme after his resurrection. For 40 days he takes a seminar class with his disciples and he tells them about what this kingdom of God means for them. And it makes sense because Jesus is soon going to take his seat on a throne. And surely that makes a monumental difference for how the kingdom is going to go forward from this point on. You know, when David was elevated as a king of Israel, with him were elevated the positions of those around him. And so you take Abiathar and you take Joab. Joab was uh, the leader of the armies of David. When David became king of Israel, Joab then became the leader of the armies of Israel. And Abiathar, who used to be the priest to David, when David was made king, became the high priest of the entire nation. When Jesus is enthroned in glory, there is an elevation in his position. And then he gives his Holy Spirit to the church to bless us on our mission. We're going to see how much we need his help in our second point. But one of the questions that the disciples have is they begin to ask Jesus. We're not told all of the questions that they had in the 40 days with him, but one of the questions that is told us is they're saying, Jesus, is, is this a time now where you're going to come back to Israel and you're going to restore the kingdom? You see, it was very hard for the disciples in the early church to separate the idea of God's kingdom going out into this world apart from a physical nation like Israel. It makes sense, actually, if you read from the Old Testament why they would have thought this. Uh, one of the texts that we use for Christmas in Isaiah 9 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government is going to be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. 
and upon the throne of David and over his kingdom. You see, these disciples were expecting a military conquest. They were expecting Jesus to take his throne in Jerusalem and then to conquer this world. And Jesus, interestingly, does not rebuke the question. Because there is coming a day where he will vanquish all evil. But he redirects their focus. He tells them that the way that the kingdom is going to advance in this world right now is not by means of the sword, but by means of of the gospel. In Luke 24, he says this to, to them. He says, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. The way that the gospel, the way that the church was going to advance was by means of the gospel. And right, that was the, church, the message of the early church. That's the message of our church today. We are still going to the nations. We're going as far and wide as possible. And we're declaring to them the forgiveness of sins. There is coming a day where Jesus will vanquish evil, but right now he is conquering evil by transforming the human heart. That's the message we get to declare. I wonder, beloved, are you obsessed with this king? Are you obsessed with what he has done for you? I mean, England level obsessed with this king. This king is amazing. This king has beaten death for you. This king has poured out every blessing he has upon you. This king has ascended on high. He is ruling over his church. He's done everything for his church. He laid down even his life for his church. Are you obsessed with the glory of who your king is, the beauty of his name, the worth of his name? They say that the 19th century was the most evangelistic century in the whole history of the church since the time of the apostles. In that century, you had people like David Livingstone going down to Africa, walking from tribe to tribe as he would declare the message of Jesus. You have people like C.T. Studd, who was that cricket player who gave up everything because he said, I want to build a rescue mission a yard from hell. You have people like Amy Wilson Carmichael, who would go down to India, Calcutta, into the heart of darkness with those who were in temple prostitution to tell them about this Jesus and what he could do to forgive their sins. You have people like George Whitfield who would go across the American colonies and stir up the greatest awakening the church has ever seen. And I tell you, these men were men and women who were obsessed with the glory and the wonder of their king of all kings. If we want to be a church that's alive and, and thriving and active, we need to be obsessed with who he is. Charles Spurgeon says of George Whitfield, this man who with such zeal went across the whole entire land. More people knew George Whitfield than they knew George Washington at the time. He says, there's no interest that attaches to such a man as George Whitfield. As often as I have read his life, I am conscious of a distinct quickening whenever I turn to it. He lived. Other men seem to be half alive, but Whitfield was all life, fire, wing, force. These are men who loved their king. And sometimes I wonder if the church of the modern era has become so comfortable that we no longer 
are willing to go to the ends of the earth for the sake of the Lamb who has taken away the sins of the world. You know, you never know what God might do through your life if you're willing to say, like Isaiah, here I am, send me. God took 12 uncommon men and he turned over a whole empire. God can do mighty things to those through those who are willing to give themselves for his name. But church, this is something that's not just meant for a select few. It's not just meant for the people that we're supporting through our funds and in our budget. Missions is something for the whole church to be involved in. You are my witnesses. One commentary I read said, Mission is to the church like air is to fire. And without it, the church fizzles out. It makes sense. If this is the work that Jesus has given to his church, the great commission that he has, he has told us to do, if that is what he wants to do, if that is the work of our king here on earth, then the church that isn't involved in missions is not getting the signals from the message of the head to its members. And there's going to be a paralysis that ensues. We need to be a church it's not just concerned about the people on the inside of our doors, but on our neighbors, our co-workers, on those around us. What does Jesus say? It's going to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. It begins, beloved, at home. It begins with the people around us. So they're a church that's obsessed with their kings. But second, they're a church that's energized by the Spirit. This is, after all, the Great Commission. We don't stand a chance of making one step in the right direction if we don't have the help of our God on our side. And that's exactly what Jesus promises to his people here in our text. In verse 4 it says, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Spirit not many days from now. And Jesus has been helping his disciples out for a long period of time now in building this anticipation for the work of the Spirit to help them in their lives. You see what a comforting truth that would have been to them. You imagine being in the disciples' shoes as the man that you have walked with, the man who you have listened to in his conversations. You've seen his love. You've seen his miracles. You've seen his works and now that founder, now that leader is, is leaving you. Jesus is going to be taken up in a cloud, and many commentators believe this is the Shekinah glory cloud, which means that the presence of Jesus is leaving. His physical bodily presence is no longer going to be with them. But Jesus has long been telling them that they do not need to fear this moment because he is going to send the Spirit. And so he's been telling them things that the Spirit is going to do. The Spirit is going to help guide you into all truth. The Spirit's going to help you remember the things that I taught and the things that I did. The Spirit is going to give you wisdom in those difficult circumstances that you're trying to work through. The Spirit is able to give life. The Spirit is able to give encouragement. The Spirit is able to comfort you where you need comfort. He's long been prepping him for what the Spirit is going to do, because Jesus says the Spirit is one just like him. That is, it's God himself. That he's not just going to be around every once in a while, 
but is actually going to live inside of us. In particular, what Jesus wants to tell his disciples as he is now launching them into this great mission that extends itself all the way to the ends of the earth is he says that you are going to need the power of the Spirit to help you out. As you look through the book of Acts, you see how many times the disciples are on their knees. And what does the Spirit do? We read of how the Spirit fills them with power. What could take a man like Peter, a man who could not even tell a servant girl that he was following Jesus? What could take a man like that and put him in front of a crowd of thousands to declare the risen Lord and what he had done and say to people like, you crucified this risen Lord. And convict them so much that 3,000 would be added to the church in one day. What could make a, a man like uh, Stephen, who would be preaching to a crowd of those who have stones in their hands. Thank you very much for not having that today. But he could preach in front of a, man, of, of a crowd with, with stones in their hands. And he could declare to them that Jesus is alive and he is well. And he can forgive even their sin. What can make a man do that? That's not human strength. That is the power of the Spirit working through them. What could make, take a man like Paul, a man who was weak in his own flesh, who, who had a thorn in his flesh? What can make a man like that stand before Agrippa and judges and rulers and go into the heart of Jerusalem to uh, a number of Jews who he knows were seeking his own life? What can make him willing to go to them and declare the risen Lord and what he has done. It can only be done through the power of the Spirit. And beloved, we need to realize our own need here for such a high calling as this great commission. But Jesus ensures us that he can give this power to us through his Holy Spirit. And that's what he says in verse 8, you shall receive power. There's no doubt in Jesus' mind. There's no, there's no sense of of. This mission might fail. He says, no, I know it's a big mission, but the Spirit who shall give power is going to help you out. Beloved, do we factor that in? Sometimes I, I talk to people and they say, you know, this gospel news, to tell that to my friends or tell that to my family, tell that to my coworkers, you know how hard it is for me? Say things like, you know, I, d I just have a stammering tongue. I'm not very eloquent in my speech. I can't explain things like you do. Moses was a stammer. Do we recognize that we have another helper here? Do we recognize that Jesus didn't give this great commission and say, hey, try, try your best? That would be mission impossible. Jesus says it can only be done through my spirit. When my spirit gives you power, that's when you go out. If we want to have confidence before family and friends and co-workers and all the rest, we are going to need the help of the spirit. We can make this mistake as individuals. We can make this mistake as churches. Or we think of, of doing missions or, or helping in some way. And we think to ourselves, well, wait a minute. I'm not sure our church has enough resources for that. I'm not sure our church has enough manpower to get that thing done. I wonder if we too often are thinking in terms of human resources and not factoring in 
the great blessings that our king has bestowed on us. The great commission can only be done through the help of his spirit. So after telling them the confidence they can have that they will be empowered by this spirit, we see as he ascends into heaven that these disciples are then given a holy shove. If you look at verse 10, it says, While they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. I don't think I would be much different than the disciples here. You can imagine why they're staring up into the clouds. I mean, the Lord of glory is being taken up in the Shekinah cloud of glory, and he is going to be enthroned in heaven. And so they're caught up in the wonder of it all, and they're amazed at this king that they're serving. But God doesn't seem to spend much time allowing them to revel in this. He soon sends two angels that help redirect the disciples once again. Help them get on with the mission. And so it reminds me of those times where there's these glorious things that God is doing. You take the Mount of Transfiguration when he transfigures himself and shows the glory of who he is on the mountain. What does Peter say? Why don't we build some tents here? They wanted to stay in that moment for as long as possible, but Jesus says, no, we need to get back down this mountain. Reminds me of the woman who go to the tomb, and they meet two angels there as well, and the angels say, what are you doing here? He's not in the tomb. He is risen. So don't stay around this area. You need to get that news out. You need to tell the world he is alive and he is well. And here in this, this beautiful, amazing moment where Jesus is taking his seat on his throne, the angels come again and say, all right, but let's get back into the world. Let's remember that there is a dying world out there that is perishing. There are people that are going towards an eternity without knowing who this Jesus is. So let's get out onto the streets. Let's get out onto the alleyways. Let's get to the darkest corners of this world and let's let them know what he has done for sinners, whoever they may be. The chief of sinners can refine forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. And that is the same message the Spirit is declaring even to this day. Like I said, there is coming a day where Jesus will come to vanquish evil with a sword, where he will destroy the Antichrist with a breath. But right now, God has opened up this window of opportunity for men to come and find repentance and forgiveness of sins in him so they might not be conquered by a sword, but conquered by the gospel. I pray if you are coming here today that you would be conquered by the love and the mercy and the beauty of this king. Who wouldn't want to serve a king like Jesus? This is a king who would give his life for the church. This is a king who promises eternal life where you'll be full of energy, full of joy for all of eternity, worshiping his name. This is a king who is building his church and protecting his church and giving everything for the cause of his loved ones. This is the king that we serve. And I pray that you today would bow your hearts and you would receive this Lord as your king. 
And may we as a church be so enthralled, so captivated, so in love with this king that we want to be a church that is on cause for his mission, seeking his powering spirit to help us out, but going out into the world and declaring the good news that we have found in Jesus, good news for us and good news for all the world as we like to remind ourselves in this Christmas season. So may the king of the ages the resurrected one, the ascended one, ever be the king of our hearts. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you are continuing your work through the church, that you haven't, you haven't stopped for one moment of time, that you are continuing to make this church a beautiful bride. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would continue to gather those from every nation, tribe, and tongue from all over the world to behold the worthy Lamb of God which we serve. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would be able to be willing to give our lives for this cause, that we'd be willing to proclaim your name on every corner and every street until your glory covers this earth, even as the waters cover the sea. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would come again soon, just as you left us, uh, a king on the throne, descending upon the clouds with trumpets loud, resurrecting us to the great hope of the ages. We pray, O oh Lord, that the king would continue to conquer every heart and every soul until, O oh Lord, your church is complete. We pray this through the beautiful name of our king of glory. In Jesus' name, amen.